0: I guess throughout the week, we've kind of been touching on, on, on finances. We've touched on uh, housing, uh, sort of lamenting to a certain extent where we are with this housing crisis and the people who not only can't afford homes uh, to buy their own homes, but a lot of people now being really, really squeezed in the rental market. We're joined now by Adam Toy of Global News and GlobalNews.ca. He's a contributor to the uh, Global News series, New Roots. And now, uh, Adam, first of all, welcome to the program. Now, in an earlier installment, we learned about sort of this trend of interprovincial migration, people moving away from, say, Toronto, Vancouver, uh, to less expensive cities or, or rural communities. In your story, you're focusing to a certain extent on, on, uh, on the city of Calgary, Alberta, and, and more specifically, maybe the rental market. What did you find there?
1: Well, I found that um, a lot of people are moving to Calgary. I mean, it's, it's no surprise. Calgary is the fourth largest city in the country. It's right next to the mountains. So if you ever want to go for a, a, high, a nice hike out there, and it's, it's, it's very easy to access and has for many years uh, celebrated its quality of life. So it's no surprise that a lot of folks want to move to Calgary. But in the past four years, 100,000 people have moved into the city both from out of the country and uh, within the country. And then also uh, the city of Calgary itself expects another 110,000 uh, people to move in, uh, like I said, in the next four years. And that is really putting the pinch on people who are currently living in Calgary of all ages. Uh, I featured a 28-year-old theatre professional very early on in her life, uh, was renting with the eye to buy in the near future, and that has those plans have been put on hold now because she's – was facing a rent increase, had to move out. And uh, yeah, it was just, a, it's a really challenging situation for a lot of renters in the city.
0: And, you know, reading your story and, and, and learning a little bit about this couple, they would seem like, you know, prime candidates in any city. If somebody had a property for rent, young professional couple, no kids, I think they, I think they have a cat. Uh, you would think mm-hmm. there'd be lots of opportunities, but it's, so, it, it's just so tight that that's not necessarily the case anymore
1: yeah you're absolutely right uh she's she works in theater for her call-in-law partner works in finance like you said no kids they had a pet cat um and have been in this relationship for a long time and have been renting for uh they have a clean rental record as well but uh what millie uh was her name she told me that you know she would group showings have become uh, uh pretty regular now in the city and she said that often a single listing would have 400 applicants. And she told this really heartbreaking story of parents who were there who had their kids along with and would be... Begging uh, and pleading with the with the owners to rent them this place because it was big enough for their for for a larger family and and it was all still within their budget and so this is this is a, a, a just a little bit of what uh, Millie had experienced and, and shared with me.
0: So I haven't experienced this before. So group showing. So there's uh, it's not just this couple that will go look at an apartment. It could be multiple no. couples, families, individuals go look and and then try and find a way to get the apartment
1: (laughs) yeah it's 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 like uh, I don't know if you've ever attended an open house where the lineup was down the street. Imagine that kind of a thing, but uh, for renting. And I have seen photos uh, of of people lining up around the block even uh, to see to view a single house. This and this is this has been the story in Calgary, not only for for people looking to buy uh, because the, the 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 housing market uh, the real estate market has been hot here as well. But looking to rent where you'd have lineups, dozens of or, or more people in these lineups trying to get into a place, trying to see that the, the trying to view the place. And then, as you said, hopefully get their application in on time. Uh, it's not uncommon for people to come with their application forms pre-filled out and with check in hand for their first month's down payment to be able to get there to be able to rent a place
0: and the picture you're painting kind of it kind of speaks to everything we're learning about the housing and rental market right across the country. We talked to the housing minister this week about the crisis and he's new in his job trying to figure that out. We talked to uh, critics of some of the current federal uh, and even some provincial policies when it comes to trying to alleviate uh, the housing crisis across the country uh, because, you know, and what puts a couple like the one that you spotlight in your, in your story in this position is because at the same time that the rental market is heating up, so is the housing market. And so, uh, you know, people are renting and then those apartments are getting sold out from under them and they're just kind of spit out into this system uh, saying, OK, now what do we do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you're a private, uh, say a private landlord and you have someone coming up to you and offering you, which is not an uncommon thing in Calgary, uh, offering you, uh, Market price or above market price and say you bought a decade ago, uh, that's that's a calculus that for some is easy to make. Um, Millie was one of those uh, situations where her where her unit was sold out from under her. Her landlord gave her the proper amount of, of notice, which was you know, uh, fortunate, but it's still uh, then forced. uh, Millie didn't, she didn't want to stick her and her, her partner didn't want to stick around to find out whether or not the new owner would be, would be renting up. But yes, you're, you're right. The, uh, the real estate market has, it's skyrocketed in, in, in the city. Uh, Let's see the the latest CREB report, uh, Calgary real estate board uh, is CREB showed home sales, uh, we're up 18% higher than last year, and uh, the and part of that is is people moving into Calgary, looking at home prices. Say from a Vancouver or a Toronto, where uh, it you're going to drop a million dollars to buy a house, a house in Calgary. Median house price in Calgary for a single detached. White picket fence type of a a house is in the $700,000 range. So again, it's, it, a lot of people are just looking at the numbers and trying to figure out, trying to find out the best place where they can have the best quality of life. But it's squeezing out, uh, you know, people like Amelie who are just trying to get their professional life, uh, started up and potentially a, a family life started up.
0: And it's a cycle right now that, that nobody seems to have found a way to get us out of where, yeah, you know, people leave, uh-huh. uh, a Toronto, a Montreal, uh, a Vancouver, and they go to what is perceived to be a, a less expensive locale. But all that tends to do is set that market on fire. And Mm -hmm. before long, uh, you're pricing people out of that market as well. And then we get to the construction industry, and I'm reading another story today where people, there's they can't get people to work in the construction industry, so you need more immigration. And when you bring in more immigration, that also puts a continued squeeze on uh, on housing and on rental. And again, it just feeds right into all of these things that this couple that you spoke to are talking about.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely uh, you're absolutely right, and uh, that is something that the uh, construction industry in Calgary and, and and Alberta has been raising the flags uh, for uh, for a while. Is that they've that there are thousands of construction jobs left vacant in Calgary, and that's. Uh, impacting development across the board, not just building houses and apartments, but of all sorts of building. And, and yes, this is that's a, a, certainly a phenomenon that we're we're seeing uh, across the country. I did read read the same story, but yeah, the Calgary Construction Construction Association estimates that there are three to four thousand construction job vacancies in the Calgary region. So you can imagine that if you can't find the workers to build the houses, how are you going to build the houses?
0: Uh, we've been talking a little bit, Adam, of course, about the rental market. You, in your article that's online today, uh, focus on a Calgary couple who had the apartment they were staying in, it was sold, so now they went back into the rental market, and uh, and it's tough out there. You know, It's tough to buy a home, but it's also tough to be a renter. And I'm curious, when it comes to hard dollars uh, in the rental market, have you been able to, to dig into some information on, on price increases uh, as things have heated up uh, maybe over the past year, and how might that compare historically?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so rentals.ca actually just put out their rent report for this past month, and Calgary is, again, seeing some of the hottest year-over-year growth. Not the hottest, but bigger than the large centres of Toronto, Vancouver, and uh, and Montreal. And the, the city of Calgary, they had a, a, an affordability uh, task force, housing affordability task force. They said that uh, rents citywide have increased by 25% in the past year. Uh, Rentals.ca showed that from July of this year to July of last year, uh, Calgary rents have jumped by 17%. 17%? Um, Yeah. And I don't think that there's been raises. I was going to say, (laughs)
0: nobody's income is going up by an average of 17% a year.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. And I I asked Millie, and I I didn't get to include this in in the story, but I asked her what you know how much she is spending on um, on on rent, and it's well above that 30% that is recommended by financial professionals of, of how much people should be spending. It was around 40% or more that she was spending uh, for her home. And I, I know also that uh, the that, uh, task force that I told you about, uh, the city, they released uh, some information It showed that more than 80,000 households in the city are paying more than one third of their income on housing. And here's a, a bit of a shocker, a shocking stat is that one in 10 households, are at risk of homelessness uh in the city and these are just folks who are living here who are as as i said being squeezed out by people coming in from other cities looking to uh looking to to find another place to live that's that is affordable from their perspective not blaming these other folks who are coming in because uh that is you know it, it, it can't blame anybody for finding a better quality of life but it's, it's certainly having a lot of impacts, uh, a lot of second and third order impacts uh, here in the city.
0: And it's pretty sobering when you think about it, because, you know, when we focus on the, the housing crisis, if we separate, uh, you know, per home ownership, from rental, there's a lot of people mm-hmm. now, uh, and maybe one of the first generations that are just throwing their hands up and saying, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to buy a house. And then to look at the flip side and say, those same people may be f- being forced out of the rental market. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. uh, now, is there anybody that you've talked to that, that, that has a solution to this other than just sort of the old, we've got to build more places?
1: Uh, yeah, build more houses, get more units to to, to to address the demand. That is certainly a popular one. Uh, the City of Calgary, uh, through those task force recommendations, um, some of the things that were recommended were to allow for um, just a, a single land use code for all residential that would be streamlining that building process. Um, Also, I was speaking with a a Calgary councillor, Courtney Walcott, and he said that he would like to see more purpose-built rentals and affordable rentals built Mm -hmm. because he sees that as a backstop because if you have a lot of people falling out of the housing market falling out of the rental market, uh, this is able to provide, you know, uh, address that demand. And he, he, he said something interesting is that uh, purpose-built rentals is a housing style that doesn't, uh, it isn't affected by the ebbs and flows of the economy, which is something that a a, a realtor told me was that Calgary. Previously, the housing market changed with oil prices, but now this is a different beast, a different phenomenon. So, uh, the councillor, uh, the city councillor, said that affordable rental is that backstop that's required for the entire economy to not lose housing as a basic need. Um, in terms of other solutions, I mean, there, there's all sorts of policy solutions that could happen. Uh, something else that I, I didn't really get to look too far into was co-op housing, cooperative housing. Right. Uh, but that's that's a that's a whole other. A host of challenges because uh, they need funding in order to build the houses and s- uh, trying to secure that funding in this current policy landscape and in, in the current uh, building landscape is, is is a real challenge, uh, a real challenge to do. And a lot of the housing co-ops and uh, that were put together in the 70s and the 80s, they're facing end of life issues. So they also need to, to, to do that. Yeah, it's it's a real, uh, real sticky wicket for for all concerned.
0: We've we certainly heard that the, the co-op uh, housing uh, floated before as a possible solution, but it currently makes up such a tiny, uh, a tiny yes. percentage of what's out there that it it certainly seems like maybe more of a longer-term solution, but something that might not help. Pull us out of what we're into right now, Adam. It's it's a fascinating uh, topic. It's quite a sobering topic for a lot of people, and we do appreciate you uh, sharing your reporting with us tonight. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Sid.
0: Ben is off until Monday. My name is Sid Smith. Our thanks once again to Gurdeep Pander of the Yukon, who joined us just before the news at the bottom of the hour. What a ray of sunshine, even though he's uh, in the pitch dark in uh, the wilds of northern Ontario as we speak in it. It took a little bit of time to get him online, uh, but we were able to get uh, connected and we're thrilled that we were able to do so. He's on a, uh, if you if you missed it, he's on a bit of a tour of Northern Ontario. He kind of seems to do that periodically. Uh, he's seen much of Canada. Uh, on this trip, he just took a dip in Lake Superior. So he swum in all of our oceans and all of our uh, great lakes in the country as he's kind of ticking things off of his personal bucket list as he goes and as he goes i've seen some of the uh the stories and the videos and some of the some of the larger cities and also a lot of the smaller communities where he goes and he's just doing what he does he's grabbing 30 or 40 or 100 people and going to a park and and uh and and making everybody happy and showing them all the different dances that he knows and i'm sure they're showing them some and as he says he likes to kind of have the cross-cultural aspect, kind of blend everything together. So our thanks to uh, Gardeep for joining us. Uh, we mentioned earlier in the week, we we're talking about electric vehicles. There was a story that kind of crossed our desk and kind of piqued our interest. It was a a family from Manitoba, and they had a, an electric uh, pickup truck, quite expensive. I think they paid well over $100,000 for it, a beautiful truck by the by the looks of it. And they were driving on a family vacation. They ended up, I believe it was in Wisconsin. It was in the United States. And they charged at one place, everything went fine. Then they went to another one and the charger didn't work or they were getting error codes. They went to another one and they tried that. It didn't work. So the end of the story was essentially, they said, you know, this obviously doesn't work for our family vacation. They ditched their brand new truck, rented a gas powered vehicle and finished their family vacation. Now that's anecdotal. And I think over the course of Our lifetimes, uh, we've driven up to gas pumps that are out of order or that they may be out of gas. It's very rare, but it certainly does happen. I know it's happened to me. But you're generally within five minutes if you're in a city, 10 or 15 minutes if you're in a smaller town, an hour or two if you're even on a remote highway of finding another gas station. Well, that's not the case. Uh, with the infrastructure for electric vehicles. So we wanted to dive into that a little bit. We're joined to do that with uh, Brian Kingston. He's president and CEO of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. And uh, Brian, I know that we have this uh, mandate in this country that within a dozen years or so, we may only be able to purchase, if we're purchasing a new vehicle, fully electric cars and trucks— But it would seem that if we're going to do that, we need to get this infrastructure thing figured out so that, you know, if people are going to drive these vehicles, we need to be able to charge them.
2: That's exactly it. Charging infrastructure is critical to this transition. Every survey that's done of Canadians and drivers finds that they are worried about the availability of charging infrastructure, primarily when they consider the switch to electric. And In fact, the majority of Canadians right now are saying that they're either very unlikely or somewhat unlikely to consider an EV for their next purchase, largely because of concerns around charging infrastructure. So we have to get that right if we're going to get to full electrification in 12 very short years.
0: And there's different arguments that I've heard on this. And one kind of centers around, you know, major urban centers and cities. And that's one thing where, you know, if you own your own home and you can charge at home, and if you only are driving it to go to work or maybe doing some errands, that's one thing. But I don't know that a lot of Canadians have the luxury of, you know, this is my car for my errands and work. And this is the one we take on road trips and family vacations most are using their vehicles for all of those things, and once you get outside the cities, the, right now the landscape is dotted with gas stations, but it's certainly not dotted yet with with charging stations. How much how much time and how much money is it going to take to get there as quickly as we need to get there?
2: Well, this is this is the challenge. Canadians use their vehicles for a range of purposes: be it going to a cottage, going fishing, taking your kids to hockey—you name it. And so when they consider an electric vehicle, they want to make sure that that vehicle gives them the same capabilities that they have with a gas-powered vehicle. And, you know, it's not unheard of for someone in Canada to drive 800 kilometers to go visit a family member. We have 1.1 million kilometers of two-lane road in this country. So we're going to need a huge amount of infrastructure, lots of which will have to be spread out over very sparsely populated areas. The cost to do that, right now it's estimated at about $20 billion. That's the government's estimate to build the infrastructure necessary. I would argue it's a lot more because I think we're underestimating how much infrastructure we're going to need. And on top of that, we have to build the clean and reliable electricity sources to power that infrastructure. So this is a complete transformation of the transportation system as well as our electricity grid. And it has to happen right now if we 're going to hit these targets
0: and, and where does the responsibility lie in in creating this infrastructure if it's a a federal government mandate, but there are provincial and municipal jurisdictions, and there are manufacturers uh, there's there's some talk I know about can we transition gas stations into charging stations which would seem to make sense if we 're not allowed to purchase you know gas powered vehicles anymore those will eventually go away but but this seems more complicated than just one level of government or or one entity saying okay we're going to do this and this is how it's going to work
2: that's right it's it's highly complicated and there are many different players that have a have a role in this transformation that said the federal government is unveiling a regulation which is going to mandate what consumers can and can't buy. And this is all to get towards 100% electrification by 2035. So given that they're putting forward that regulation, I would argue that they're ultimately responsible for making sure that Canadians will have the charging infrastructure to make that switch. Automakers are doing their part. We just had a recent announcement Uh, A couple of weeks ago, seven OEMs are going to build a 30,000 fast charger network across North America. Uh, And you're seeing all sorts of other private sector investments into this. But in the early stages of this transition, Charging infrastructure is not a profitable undertaking for any private sector actor because there simply aren't enough EVs on the road. So that's why it's so important for government to be actively involved now, help overbuild, help finance these unprofitable charging stations, and then as more EVs get on the roads, you'll see very interesting business models and there will be companies that find a way to make uh, earnings off these charging infrastructure uh, offerings.
0: Well, and and we're certainly not there yet. Although I'm, I'm sure somebody has plans in the work for, and maybe this is what you're alluding to. But you know, now we're accustomed, and maybe we just have to kind of rethink what it means to be on a road trip. You you fuel up, you go in, maybe you use a washroom, grab a coffee, and you're on the road again in like minutes. Uh, where now maybe those gas stations that double as convenience stores. Uh, need to have places where you can sit and have your coffee and grab a bite and uh, check your phone and 15 or 20 minutes later you walk out and you get in your vehicle and go we're we're used to kind of go 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 and and are we going to have to slow down things a little bit at least in the initial stages well there's no
2: doubt that the, it will change our our patterns of of fueling our vehicles so if you look at most EV owners right now majority of their charging is done at home, upwards of 80%. Now, those are people that have the luxury of having a you know a driveway and somewhere to put a charger at their home. So for a lot of your driving, it's gonna be hugely convenient because you're not going to need to go to a charging station ever. You'll, you can do most of your city driving and, and be able to plug in your vehicle at home. When it comes to road trips, fast charging is what's critical because people don't want to sit and wait for an hour or two hours to charge a vehicle. And you're seeing the technology advancing very rapidly now. It's getting to the point where you can get up to 80 or 90 percent in, you know, in some instances between 20 and 30 minutes as the technology advances. So I think we will get to a point where it is very fast, um, but it won't be as fast as a gas pump, at least not quite yet, where, you know, five minutes of pumping and you've got five, six, 700 kilometers of range. We're not quite there, but I'm confident the technology is going to get us pretty close.
0: Yeah. At the moment, 20 or 30 minutes seems you know a little ponderous frankly, but I, I see what you're saying, and we have to we have to be a little bit patient and see where this the technology and the the advances takes us. And as you were talking about um, you know those who have the ability with a driveway or garage install a charger charge at home, but then there are uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of Canadians who would live in condos or apartment buildings that may not even have access right now to a parking stall where they can they can plug in a vehicle.
2: Yeah, and this is probably what worries the most uh, about this transition. Um, You've got about a third of Canadians that live in what are called multi-unit residential buildings. So that's an apartment or a condo or a tower. And in many instances, those people do not have access to charging conveniently. They may have a parking spot at their building, but if it's an old building, it's highly unlikely that there is a charger that's installed and retrofitting an old parking garage for charging is very, very expensive, and it's highly unlikely that the building owner would be motivated to do that. So, that is going to be extremely challenging. How do we help those Canadians? switch to an electric and if they don't have a convenient option, be it near their building or on street charging and a lot of jurisdictions, we see cities doing a huge amount of on street charging, which can be really helpful. Um, But that's going to have to happen because again, you know, ultimately people make these decisions based on convenience. And if this becomes extremely inconvenient for them, they're not going to want to switch understandably. So we've got to build that out and we have to incentivize building owners to put that infrastructure in.
0: I think we're all well aware that we're on the road to electrification when it comes to the vehicles that we drive. There's a a push to have only new, all new vehicles, excuse me, within a dozen years be electric vehicles. There are still maybe some exceptions for, for certain classes of vehicles. And a lot would depend on the infrastructure that we can build by the time we get there uh, and so uh, brian you know we're talking about the need for when we're talking about infrastructure we're talking about the need for people to be able to charge the vehicles so they can use them the way they're intended to be used are, are we on the road to actually getting that in place quickly or are, are we dragging our feet on this
2: I'm concerned that we're not moving with enough urgency. And just to give you a sense of of what we're talking about in terms of what needs to be built out, these are government estimates, but we're going to need about 200,000 public chargers by 2030 and 450,000 by 2035. I'd argue those estimates are too low, but let's say that's correct. Mm -hmm. As it stands right now, we've got about 18,000 public chargers, and over the past year, we've built 6,000 new ones. So if you consider that pace of build out, we are nowhere close to getting to the 200,000 target in seven short years. So I think we got to be moving a lot quicker. You know, you should be able to look out any window anywhere in Canada and see someone either fixing or upgrading the grid or installing a charger somewhere. That's what it's going to take because we, you know, if we're going to hit these targets, this means 12 and a half million EVs on the road. In twelve years,
0: are there any provinces right now that you would point to and say, you know, they're doing a better job maybe than the average in this country?
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, British Columbia and Quebec uh, have been pretty aggressive on this, um, and they've been building out a lot of charging infrastructure. and And you notice it if you're if you're there driving on the roads, you'll see it, uh, and you'll notice it. And in some municipalities as well. Uh, If you look at Vancouver uh, and Montreal, a lot more on-street charging options. Um, So there are jurisdictions that, that are taking this quite seriously and they've been putting a lot of investment into it. But even in Quebec... The most recent assessment um, of their charging needs suggests that they're going to need eight times more than what they already have if they're going to hit mm-hmm. their target. So, you know, it's a good start. But again, this is a fundamental transformation of the, of the transportation system. And it's going to require a lot more than what we're currently planning for.
0: And, and outside of Canada, is there, is there any other country or jurisdiction that, that you would look to and say maybe we could take a few pointers from them?
2: Well, I tend to look to uh, California. And the reason is um, they have very similar targets uh, to Canada. So California is aiming to have 5 million EVs on the road by 2030. Our target is 4.6 million. Um, And California also has this regulation, a zero-emission vehicle sales mandate, which is what Canada is effectively copying and implementing at a federal level. So if we're going to do that and we're going to emulate California, we need to, at a minimum, invest as much as them in charging infrastructure. And right now, California is spending three times as much and building double the infrastructure. And again, that's in a place that doesn't have extreme cold weather like we do. It doesn't have a rural population uh, the size of what we have in Canada, and it doesn't have a road network as extensive as ours. So I think that's probably a baseline, um, and uh, and I would argue because of those unique Canadian factors, we need more.
0: Well, and the cold weather is the other thing. Infrastructure and cold weather are two things that come up when people start talking about why they might be a little bit hesitant in moving towards electric vehicles. Are they intertwined at all? Do you need more charging the colder it gets? Is there, is there less, it's not fuel economy, is there less range in electric vehicles when it's cold?
2: You do, and, and the technology is advancing rapidly. But yeah, the reality is when it's minus 20, you're going to see a range penalty on your EV battery. And so for Canadian populations, particularly if you live in a smaller rural community and you've got a larger driving distance, uh and you know you're you're exposed to very cold weather throughout the the winter months you're going to need more infrastructure because those driving distances, those ranges will come down and you're going to have to charge more frequently. I hope over time that you'll see the, the technology get to a point where that range penalty becomes much smaller. But again, early years, if we want to get Canadians to make that switch, we have to solve that for them. And the best way to do it is to have widespread charging infrastructure.
0: Well, it sounds like we as a nation have our work cut out for us. Uh, Brian, thanks for helping to shed some light on, on the issues here. We do appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me on. Great to chat.
0: And behind the scenes over the last 30 or 40 minutes, we're getting sign-off from various executives scrambling helicopters in the wilds of Northern Ontario and hats off to big Fred. I know a very good helicopter pilot, but I was a little concerned about the aim and apparently the, Satellite phone fell within within sight line of Gurdeep Pander, uh, and he is able to join us now. Gurdeep, we're thrilled to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you, Sid. Very nice to meet you, and it's very nice to connect with your listeners.
0: Yes, very much. So, where you're in Northern Ontario? Whereabouts in Northern Ontario?
3: Right now, I'm somewhere between Marathon and Thunder Bay. Um, Sort of in the middle of nowhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a ways to go, I think, to get to the middle of nowhere. That's how that's how far deep into the bush you are there. So that's uh, that's northwestern Ontario. So would you've been you've been sort of along the shores of Lake Superior?
3: Yes, yes. From last couple of days, I have been enjoying the views of Lake uh, Lake Superior. It has been majestic, great, and wonderful.
0: All right, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit here. People have been promoting your appearance on the program, and I think Gurdip. A lot of people uh, know you, uh, know what you do, know what you stand for. But for for those, just a bit of a refresher, uh, you you should know Gurdip from videos that he's has posted. I, I think a lot of people Gurdip probably got to know you in the early stages of the pandemic. Those videos that you were posting, usually in the snow, usually looked bitterly, bitterly cold in Yukon um but you, but you were you were posting some videos before that as i understand it i'm always curious as to uh how did you end up in yukon
3: uh so uh, about uh, uh 13 years ago i became canadian then i started traveling to learn, to learn more about canada in 2011 so during my traveling i also went to the yukon to uh, explore the yukon and where i met amazing people very first day me being in the Yukon, and they took me to a gathering. We had some good time. And very next day, I went outside to explore the Yukon more. Like, I looked at amazing mountains, um, lakes, uh, wilderness, wildlife. It touched me. It touched me to the core. I felt that, you know, that that powerful... connection with the place so i decided to stay in the yukon so it's been 13 years that i've been there and uh, and, and and the world knows me through the yukon because uh, uh it, it was the yukon where i started making these videos where the world discovered me <laughs> so, so i have a lot of connection with that place yes
0: so where did the idea to start posting these videos come from
3: it started very really organic um It was in 2016 when um, organizers of Canada Day in Whitehorse, Yukon, invited me to do a little performance and uh, where uh, uh, one of my good friends, he just... uh, very casually filmed me doing that performance and in the mm-hmm. evening i posted that video just to show to my local friends what i did during that day um, and overnight 300000 people watched that video <laughs> 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 and <laughs> and when that video was watched by so many people then um, media organizations uh, in the yukon and across the country they started sending me invitation talk about the video and that was that was the time when i realized the power of this medium like video so um i started making uh, one or two videos every month uh, i made video with the mayor of white horse canadian armed forces chief uh, in in the north uh, indigenous chief uh, um, yeah that's how it started but it took off a lot more during the time of pandemic
0: Well, and, you know, it's sort of for people that got to know you during the pandemic, it seemed to arrive just at the exact right moment. People were looking for, you know, a reason to smile and more so probably just a reason to connect. It was difficult for people to connect during the pandemic. And although it may have not been in person, uh, I'm sure you must have felt that connection with Canadians and for that matter, people from other parts of the world through your videos.
3: Yes, I did. Uh, Yeah, Um, when this pandemic started, um, you know that everybody knows that what the world was going through, people were uh, sad, people were confused, uh, those uh, restrictions and everything and people were not uh, sure how long uh, a pandemic would last so um, so i decided to do something at that time uh, i decided to make one video every day to send these messages of joy hope and positivity i thought that they are much needed at that time but I, at that time i didn't know that so many people across the country coast to coast to coast would be watching so to my honour, when people started watching them, and not only watching, because uh, watching is a different thing, uh, I started receiving lots and lots of handwritten letters from people, like my cabin uh, in the Yukon is uh, full, uh, the, uh, some bodies, I they are full with the handwritten letters from Canadians just uh, telling me uh, about uh, the importance of joy and, uh, and, and the sadness they were going through at that time uh, and uh, that they uh, they visit my videos they, they to find some joy so so yeah I came through their letters their feedback uh, the the value of joy the importance of this joy hope and positivity
0: yeah that's, that's pretty profound because when in in this day and age uh you know for someone to actually take the time as you just described to take a piece of paper and a pen it doesn't seem like much but to take a piece of paper and a pen and to make a handwritten letter, to put it in an envelope and to mail it off. Uh, that's a powerful thing. That doesn't really happen. So that, that, that speaks to the connection that you were able to make. You've, you, you've also talked about uh, bringing cultures together. What do you mean by that? And how do you do that through, through what you do through your videos and through when you're able to meet people in person?
3: Yes, uh, I like to make cross-cultural collaborations where I combine uh, um, the arts of different cultures through dance or music, where people from uh, uh, various diverse cultures, they play music together and we blend them and uh, I put them into my music uh, and i i do it for for a purpose just to remind people that that we belong to one world uh, to preach humanity to remind them uh, we all know that uh, especially you folks work in news the, you folks know a lot more that uh, um, sometimes in our world things happen which End up dividing our uh, society or country um, by bringing uh, uh, those cross cultural collaborations um, i were like I, I usually uh, remind people that uh, Despite everything is going, but still, we have this uh, vital, very important uh, uh, human-to-human connection, and please don't forget it. Um, and, and I'm so glad that people respond very positively to those efforts, and they appreciate them, They they tell their friends. Uh, and uh, so that's the whole purpose, uh, like uh, uh, creating appreciation for people from different walks of life, from different cultures, and also uh, bringing them into one fabric.
0: Joined by Gurdip Pander of the Yukon. He is joining us from, uh, as Gurdip, as you described it, kind of the middle of nowhere, some between, somewhere between Marathon and Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is, a, if I recall, that's kind of big time. Uh, transport truck uh, goods and services route through those highways. So I'm sure it's pretty busy there. Uh, Hopefully it's not too noisy where you're staying tonight. Uh, And did I read, did you take a swim in Lake Superior this week?
3: Yes, I did. And it was so awesome. Uh, It was one of my goals to swim in um, Canada's three oceans and all four great lakes. And by swimming in uh, Lake Superior, I completed my goal
0: that is something that most canadians will never do but it certainly sounds like uh, something that should be on everybody's bucket list it sounds fun now first of all now i guess if you're going to swim in lake superior it's probably this is probably about the best time of year to do it but i'm thinking it might still be a little chilly
3: yes it's a little chilly but it was very very refreshing and and the environment the nature the birds were flying the the color of the lake was very very blue and uh, and a little bit red, reddish because it was sun uh, sunset um the water it was so welcoming I, I, I... I was reading on my social media. People were saying, brrr, cold. <laughs> maybe, maybe I live in the Yukon where I, I often see say. minus 45 and, and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm climatized now. <laughs>
0: yeah, you can just say, yeah, trust me, people. I'm used to cold. I, this, this is like a warm <laughs> bath swimming in Lake Superior. Any preferences for the Great Lakes? Like whereabouts did you, like in what locale or what parts of the country you were in when you took a dip in Ontario or Michigan?
3: That was close to uh, Pancake uh, uh, Provincial Park. Um, it's a beautiful area. Um, I would say that about an hour drive from uh, Sault Ste. Marie towards Thunder Bay. Um, mm-hmm. And that whole stretch, I would say that uh, from Sault Ste. Marie to Thunder Bay is beautiful. There are so many other places, too, such as uh, Catherine Cove. Um, they call it Mother's old ladies bay uh they have very very different unique names and there are many other beaches too on the way um, um this morning i stopped at a beach in marathon It was amazing and gorgeous locals told me that not many people come there um and uh and people were kayaking canoeing uh they were having great uh outdoor time. And and also through my videos, apart from spreading messages of joy, hope, and positivity, apart from those uh, cross-cultural collaborations, I also promote outdoor activities. Just being outdoor is so good for happiness, positivity, and just being wonderful.
0: Uh, now, I'm going to embarrass myself here because I'm probably going to get this wrong, but a lot of smaller communities in Canada have little or big statues or symbols as you're you're coming into town. Is Marathon a Canada goose? Am I getting that right? Did you see a, a big statue of a Canada goose around Marathon somewhere? No? Uh, I
3: have seen <laughs> it in, in Wawa. Yeah, yeah. In Wawa. Wawa. Yeah, yes, there we go.
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> I got my Northwestern Ontario communities mixed up. You are correct, sir. Yes, Wawa. Um, yes, so... Wawa
3: is, is is a wonderful community of about 3000 people and uh, and uh, it's uh, a place where not you find just one two statues. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um so Obviously, you're getting to see and have over the years a lot of the country, probably more than most of us will ever, uh, you know, be motivated to get out and see. I'm curious, though, as I said before the break, so when when you first moved to Yukon, were there... Were there were there traditions, or were there things, or were there foods, or were there stuff that, when you were first exposed to it, you know, kind of surprised you, or you thought was maybe a little bit out there, or a little bit weird compared to what you were used to? Because every every country and every part of every country seems to have its own little traditions and things that they like to do.
3: Yukon is a pretty remote place. Is um... Although now nowadays, uh, thanks to the technology and communications, it is uh, becoming closer and closer to the rest of the country. Uh, but uh, previously, it was uh, it had its own culture. Even they have their own time zone. They call Yukon time, which is half an hour late. <laughs> uh, <laughs> y- 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 <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, Uh, People, they have a pretty unique food preferences. Uh, It's predominantly indigenous culture over there. Um, uh, Probably people know that in the Yukon, um, about 12 um, First Nations, um, they are self-governments and Mm -hmm. uh, they promote their culture through To food and dancing and when they do these kind of events uh, the food and and many activities around the food they become a highlight of the events Uh, so so yeah yeah when I went there uh, the the food part uh, was really wonderful and interesting in 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 a positive way Um, and I'm so glad that I got this chance to uh, go to these communities even if you go to further north like i got chance to go to old old crow old crow is yukon's uh, the community you can't uh, drive there either you you have to fly there or you can you can take board there so mm-hmm. in that community when i went there their uh food source is predominantly based on caribou so i i i, I saw people um uh uh, hunting for uh, caribou and uh, doing all those ceremonies around their food, um, it it was quite wonderful to watch people from uh, a different culture. Because um, Old Crow is pretty close to Arctic, although it's not by on the Arctic, but it's close to Arctic. Uh, and and you also get a glimpse of old time how people used to live hundreds of two hundreds even from time immemorial in that in that area. Yeah,
0: it, it, it's certainly a special place. We only have about a minute left, but I, I, I told myself if I had a chance to talk to you, I'd ask you this question because um, you you really inspire a lot of people across the country and have for a few years now. I'm curious, Deep, what inspires you?
3: Me, nature, and people. Uh, these are two of my favorites because when I'm down, because I'm a human, <laughs> I go out in the nature, I do my walking or dancing which makes me happy and also love of people their letters their feedback their positive warm words they send me paintings sketches things like that it just helps me keep going
0: well it uh, like i say you do inspire inspire a lot of people i know it's late where you are we appreciate you staying up to spend some time with us uh, have a have a great time as you continue uh, your tour across the country and hopefully we can connect again
3: Sure. And thank you, Sid, for having me. And it was truly wonderful to talk to you. Uh,
0: first of all, tonight, and we mentioned this story uh, late last night. It's the story, or at least a story of professional golfer Phil Mickelson. In excerpts from an, a forthcoming book, uh, Billy Walters alleges that Mickelson has bet one billion dollars, billion with a B on sports, and has lost $100 million. Mickelson himself has acknowledged, and he actually put out a statement uh, yesterday after this excerpt from the book came out, acknowledging, as he had in the past, a gambling addiction, says he's since gotten help and feels like he's in a pretty good spot right now. So the Mickelson story, because of his profile, as you can imagine, that's the one that gets the attention. But with sports gambling now legal in uh, so many jurisdictions across North America, the industry itself uh, seems to be increasingly in the spotlight. I mean, turn on a a hockey game or a football game or a baseball game and try and escape the messaging. Some of it is sort of traditional commercials, others disguised as content. Uh, But the industry is bringing in billions in profits. It in turn is funneling hundreds of millions, if not billions, back to professional sports leagues and teams at the same time that it is raising questions about the potential for increased addictions and even some quiet whispers in, in some corners about the potential for game fixing down the line. So to help us kind of get a handle on, on where we are, because it seems to have kind of come upon us very quickly over the last several months or a couple of years, uh, where we are in this country with sports gambling, we're joined by Michael Narain, who is associate professor uh, from the Department of Sport Management at Brock University. Uh, Michael, welcome to the program.
4: Oh, thanks for having me, Sid.
0: Uh, you know, the Mickelson story is an interesting one. Uh, I, I'm just going to ask you for an opinion if you have one off the top, but it's probably a little bit separate from what we're talking about in that, you know, Mickelson, you know, kind of gained his fortune and fame at a time when these legalized sites weren't a part of of his gambling history per se. He was doing it whether it was offshore accounts or those sorts of things, but it kind of it's kind of stunning the the, the numbers that are being alleged here.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably one of the, the biggest takeaways is that the number is so large. But, you know, I, I think it's really interesting um, that the story has come to light, again, allegedly, uh, the number being what it is, that, you know, when you think about a guy like Michael Jordan, you know, the greatest basketball player, uh, man, man or woman, in my opinion, of all time, um, for those out there who have seen The Last Dance, the the sort of docu-series on, on mm-hmm. the 1990s, uh, six Chicago Bulls I mean you're, you're getting uh or, excuse me the uh, sort of mid, mid-90s mid Chicago Bulls you're getting a similar vibe that you know Michael Jordan was also an avid gambler at a time in which internet gaming was not around um you know Michael and you know whether it's Scotty Dennis Rodman they were also traveling to Vegas on, on occasion um even before that in the 70s and 80s we're talking about Pete Rose and then you know a long time ago you know you go all the way far back as Uh, you know, the black socks and and match fixing and that, you know, sort of perspective, I think at the end of the day, professional athletes are also not immune from, uh, you know, wanting to gamble those who have the predisposition or they develop the, you know, the hedonic or utilitarian motivation to gamble in, in most cases, for professional athletes, it tends to be hedonic. They're trying to glean additional value out of, uh, you know, their downtime. Um, And so for a guy like Michael Jordan has no problem saying, Hey, you know what? I'm, I, I bet you, I can make this shot from, you know, 35 feet. And for a guy like Phil Mickelson, you know, golf and gambling kind of go hand in hand. I'm not surprised that Phil, um, would say, hey, look, I'm going to gamble on myself, but I'm also going to gamble on other events like, you know, allegedly the Ryder Cup. So um, that that's kind of the key takeaway off the top is that professional athletes are also not immune uh, to sports gambling harms and addiction.
0: Right. They're not immune at the same time when, when people read a story like this, say, about Phil Mickelson uh, you mentioned Michael Jordan as another uh, famous athlete who is also famous in part for his for his gambling exploits. But uh, not too many people are going to shed tears for those athletes who may still be worth. I mean, in Michael Jordan's case, he may be worth a billion dollars. I think the latest update on Mickelson is he's worth somewhere <laughs> in the neighborhood of half a billion dollars. Uh, but we'll we'll get into some of the harm. Like you know, we're talking now with with the proliferation of legal gambling of people who simply can't afford. The hundred dollar bet they're placing on this baseball game today, but they but they can't help themselves from doing it. So, but I wanted to start like how how did we get here? For for years and years and years, uh, with uh, governments uh, were all in agreement that gambling was a no no. We we weren't going to go down that road. And then there were some different jurisdictions. There were different court cases and challenging. And it seemed like in the blink of an eye, it is one of the biggest industries in North America.
4: Yeah, I'll I'll try to distill it as quickly as I can and as thoroughly as I can. I I think one of the key preface points I I do need to make, though, is, you know, here in North America, we've kind of been in this insular bubble that you kind of mentioned, Sid, where, you know, we want to prevent match fixing. We want to prevent organized. Uh, crime from getting involved and so you know we'll kind of keep it uh, a, a criminal activity i'll come back to that in, in, in a moment whereas other jurisdictions like england australia even east asia china um, to you know some, some of those jurisdictions had been you know maturing as legal responsible game gambling um jurisdictions for some time Um, You know, for a long period, we'll we'll fast forward, we'll hit the skip intro button on Netflix here. If if we get to the 1980s, uh, you know, the, the Canadian Criminal Code was amended to allow sports gambling in Canada. However, it had to be legislated at a provincial or territorial level, and it had to be parlay betting. So that means you had to bet on at least two activities to happen and occur in order for you to win. Now, part of the reason for that, the thinking was, well... It would prevent match fixing because if you, if you know, someone says, I'm going to throw the game, okay, well, that's one game, it's harder to throw two or more games. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot more, uh, you know, uh, chefs in the kitchen, if you know what I mean. Now, all this to say, it was crown regulated. You know, BCLC has their book, Alberta's got their stuff here in Ontario. We had Proline, and, and you know, of, of, of course, many of the listeners know that these things still exist. The challenge was the third party operators the and I'm going to mention some names, not because I've got any particular uh, affinity for them, but because these are the, the the ones that are spending millions of dollars in their their uh, ad re, uh, ad spend, excuse me, to acquire customers. They're the fan duels of the world, the points bet, right. the draft kings. And so as those operators were becoming more popular particularly in the United States, we'll say, we'll keep this a Canadian story, but as the operators were becoming more prominent in the U.S. and then the court cases in the U.S. were starting to, uh, you know, be overturned and things were starting to deregulate in the U.S. at a state-by-state level, there was also a movement here in Canada to say, look, we're losing out on this revenue. You know, folks from B.C. could drive to Washington State. They could drive to Oregon. They could drive to even Colorado, Um, and, and, you know, or even fly to Vegas and do some sort of, you you know, uh, gambling tourism, um, we're losing out on that revenue, A. But B, more importantly, we're also losing out on the existing revenue that's going to offshore European markets. And so for a long period of time, you know, people in Canada who are sports gambling, uh, outside of the crown jurisdictions, outside of the crown books, they were using the internet but you you know going to the Cayman Islands or you know mm-hmm. Monaco and and some of these offshore websites and the problem with that is a there's a lack of responsible gambling education there and b the tax revenue is taken offshore and it doesn't stay at home so whether you're an economic sort of small c conservative or whether you're more and you're free market or you're more into we need to be proactive about education, responsible gambling, um, you know, limiting harms. Uh, we sort of left side of the political spectrum. There was kind of a dual focus on, well, we need to have a responsible marketplace here in Canada. And so in 2021, long story short, uh, the Canadian Criminal Code is amended. uh uh, the um the house of commons passes uh the the senate passes and it goes to royal assent which is now known as the safe and regulated sports betting act uh here in canada so now individual provinces and territories can regulate their own books but they can also authorize these third-party operators to have a license and that's what we're seeing in ontario that's what we're likely to see in Alberta, and we'll see what happens in B.C. going forward. But uh, the story here in Ontario is there is a lot of money to be made on licensing out uh, sports books to these operators. Uh,
0: Michael, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, when, when we introduce something like this and, and we regulate it, and so as a society, uh, you know, if we're going to do this and we know that some harm could come from it, there's a certain responsibility to try and mitigate that harm. And in this case, I think... We're mostly thinking about addictions. Do we have data yet on 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 gambling addictions and and whether there has been any sort of an increase uh, since this this proliferation in, in sports gambling?
4: Yeah, it's a fantastic question, Sid. And I think so. That, so I'm going to answer it in two ways. The, the short answer is yes, and we'll talk about it. But it is early days, right? So you know, as I mentioned here in Ontario. Um, you know, our marketplace with these third-party operators starts in April 4th of 2022. So we're about a year and a quarter into this new world. Um, And, you know, the research is still ongoing and it's very limited. And I'll come back to that point in a a quick sec. But from the research that we do know, um, there has been an uptake in in, uh, harms and addictions, particularly amongst youth ages 19 to 25. So sort of that Uh, I'm not going to say millennial because I'm a millennial, but sort of the Gen Z, um, you know, university crowd. And that's not to be, um, that's not an unsurprising result because we're talking about internet gaming. We're talking about the ability to not just go to your convenience store anymore, or even just, you know, log onto a laptop website, but really to use your phone, to download an app, uh, to make bets. And, you know, I'm a university professor um, last semester, my students are in class at 8 o'clock in the morning, and before we get into the hard content, before I bore them to death, they're setting their bets for the day. <laughs> I, I mean, they're, they're, they're setting, you know, the, the Leafs yeah. are going to beat the Canucks, um, you know, oh. at 7 p.m., and, you know, class is starting at 8 a.m. So so they're, they're setting all of their bets uh, and placing all of their wagers early on in the day. Um, and so we, we do know that it disproportionately affects youth. We also know, interestingly, Sid, um, and this will be perhaps surprising to the market in Vancouver. It disproportionately, sports gambling now in Canada is disproportionately affecting um, men of South Asian backgrounds, racialized communities, but specifically South Asian men. Um, we know in North America that the number one bet sport tends to be American football, tends to be the NFL. Uh, the CFL lags behind, but it's still up there. We're we'll probably talking like top five, top six. But where Canadians really love, I mean, you know, we love hockey um, as a country, and and we will bet on that, of course. But there was a lot of betting behaviors on basketball. And we know uh, from a fandom perspective that racialized communities in Canada tend to be, um, again, not stereotyping all racialized Canadians, but um, racialized minorities, particularly men from South Asian backgrounds, tend to be fans of basketball more so than some of the other sports. And there was a there was a strong um, investment into wagers in the NBA, the Toronto Raptors, but also just the NBA in general. And we're also seeing that spill over to the WNBA. And so, you know, that, that's a that's an case point right there to say, look, we're we're finding out these uh, these these uh, touch points, and what are we doing about it? Not really that much. I mean. Uh, you know, look, I'm I'm a professor based here in Ontario, but there's no sports gambling um, institute at UBC. There, there's really no sports business uh, education happening at Simon Fraser um, or, or UBC for that matter, or even Fraser Valley. So th- this is a problem that you know we need to identify. to Say, look, this is a new regulated world and space, and we need to have. A proactive approach to research and education in order to prevent these harms and addictions. Cause I'm not advocating for the removal of this regulated space. It needs to be properly regulated. It needs to be outside of the shadows and into the lim- limelight. But we also need to have these stories um, and have interventions to prevent the harms and addictions in the exact same way that, you know, during the commercial break, we're talking about, you know, hard drugs in DC and the decriminalization of those drugs it's the same sort of analogous story with sports gambling.
0: Yeah. And it, and it's not going anywhere. And I don't know, I know a few industries and we're going to have to wrap it up here, but I know a few industries that promote themselves as well. There's obviously a market for it. For some people, it increases their enjoyment and you're right. As long as it's regulated and if we're making sure there's help for people that, that do have problems with it, but you know, you, sometimes you watch a hockey game and if you're following social media at the same time, there'll be more people posting about the gambling ads than are posting about the hockey game. And there'll be someone coming on the screen and updating the odds as the game goes through, because you can still make bets as the game's going on. It's, it's it's quite the phenomenon. Michael, thank you for joining us on this Friday night to help us kind of wade through it and understand it just a little bit better. We appreciate it.
4: Uh, thanks so much. Anytime. Happy happy to jump on. Have Have a good one.